Bad news, Reed. I know you were contemplating painting your new office. Unfortunately, you won't be able to paint it the color pink. Oh, okay. All right. Because apparently the production of the movie Barbie has basically emptied the company's worldwide supply of pink paint. The specific pink color of Barbie is not available. Well, I do have pink shoelaces right now, so I'm glad I got those early. The film's production designer, Sarah Greenwood, said to Architectural Digest magazine that because of the immense amount of pink that was required for the set, it caused an international shortage. The world ran out of pink, she basically said. I feel like I need to figure out what I've got pink at the house. Maybe I could sell it, you know, buy low, sell high. Welcome to Touchpoint, a podcast dedicated to discussions on digital marketing and patient engagement strategies for hospitals, health systems, and physician practices. In this podcast, we'll dive deep into digital tools, solutions, and strategies that are impacting our industry today. We hope to share a lot of great information with you and have fun along the way. Thanks for joining us. Now, here are your hosts. Welcome to Touchpoint. Welcome to episode number 335. It's Chris Boyer. I am Reed Smith. Hey, Reed. I'm sitting here kind of going over my different paint swatches to figure out exactly what color I'm going to be painting my bedroom now. Yeah, just uh, right after this, I'm going to pop down to the creative department and uh, see you know, start flipping through some Pantone guides. So. Favorite thing, flipping through Pantone guides. This is our new social media strategy. We're going all pink. We're going to try to take advantage of the SEO value currently in the market. Well, welcome one and all. Thanks for joining us. We certainly appreciate the support, appreciate the insights. Uh, I've heard some, you know, got some nice notes over the last week and excited to be back with a uh, with another week, uh, another show. So before we jump into today's topic, got a great interview coming up as well. I did want to give a quick plug for the website, touchpoint.health. Touchpoint.health is where you can go to learn more about this show, but even more importantly, maybe to sign up for the TPS report. TPS report is an email comes out every Monday morning. Hopefully we find it uh, to be a little value add for you. Five articles to start your week curated by our show hosts. So anyway, we'll pause here for a second. Again, touchpoint.health TPS report name, email address affords you one additional email in your inbox each week that again, we hope is a little value add. So we'll pause here, let you do that and be back with today's show. Chris, in today's digital age, your online reputation, as we all know, is crucial. With customers relying on online reviews, your first impression is also compared directly with your competitors. Sure is. And Reed, consider this. 86% of patients today read online reviews and 73% demand that that healthcare provider has a minimum four-star rating. Demand. They demand it. Yeah, they do. Well, to stand out, choose reputation to help amplify your brand and to build trust. Be the provider of choice in your area, understand patient sentiment, get actionable insights, and even foster patient loyalty. And look, here's the easy way you could do that. All you need to do is go visit reputation.com slash touchpoint. That's reputation.com slash touchpoint, where you can download their healthcare online reputation management guide and build a reputation that performs for you. 
So as you mentioned, Reed, we have a really great interview coming up with a gentleman by the name of Svein Villison. He's with a company called Daily.co, and they're from Oslo, Norway. And he's been working on telemedicine and uh, telemedicine adoption across the EU. He also has a lot of great ideas about how AI is going to be used in video visits in the future. So that's going to be a really good interview. But before we get there, I thought it would be great for us to talk a little bit about AI and telemedicine, because if anything, what it accomplishes is it takes two very overused terms in our industry, AI and telemedicine, and it combines them together. That makes for a great topic for a podcast. Wouldn't you agree? I do agree. You know, I think this does kind of dovetail in some of the things that we've talked about with chat GPT and some other things, mm-hmm. you know, virtual care, the telehealth pieces, obviously, et cetera. So yeah, looking forward to, to jumping in. And before we jump to the interview, let's talk a little bit about just generally how we see AI being used in telemedicine. So we've done some research. We looked at a variety of different articles online and just kind of checked uh, where the industry's at. And I know, Reed, you're working on some stuff as well. So why don't we go through a couple of applications and use cases where we see AI and telemedicine being used in healthcare? A million things come to mind. And again, you know, we'll, in the interest of time, touch on a handful of these. One of those, diagnostic assistance. I think probably people have seen this maybe most commonly like in, in the news, right? Of this idea that an AI you know, model could run against your current imaging studies, for example, x-rays, CTs, et cetera, to either help or you know, kind of go back and scan for anything that was maybe missed. They can identify patterns, abnormalities, you know, areas of concern. I see this a lot, and I've seen a few companies out there doing some things where, you know, Chris, maybe maybe you're in a little fender bender or a car wreck. You came in, you had a, a, a scan done because of your neck or your lower back or something was hurting or something like that. Well, the doctor was looking at something real specific. Well, this is a way to go back and rinse those through to pick up anything that maybe was missed, you know, lung nodule, for example, you know, or something like that, that they weren't particularly looking for. So again, you know, kind of that existence in the diagnostic arena. This is one of the earliest applications of AI in healthcare too, because that was one of the areas we talked about before on the show, that there's been a lot of data available for a very long time. Another one, though, that we're seeing a lot of, and we've seen this happen not only in clinical consultation, but also and some of the, the work that people are doing on their websites, et cetera, it's using AI-powered chatbots and virtual assistants to help patients yeah. to either do things where they can start to collect all their symptoms and kind of navigate them to the right place to get information. But also, I have seen some companies that have released in the mental health space and even like diabetic management care, pure AI-powered chatbots that can interact directly with the patient. There's no human behind it. They're basically giving them guidance around any kind of questions they have to guide them to the right place for care. It could also be used to kind of aid and assist leading them to the right doctor for care. Next on the list, remote patient monitoring, uh, something I've been spending a fair amount of time with over the last uh, maybe year or so. There's a lot here. If you think about monitoring patients remotely, (laughs) as it says in the name, you have to do that via data collection. So usually there's some sort of a hardware or sensors or something like that that's going in the home or with the patient or or whatever that is a, and a lot of times alerting the patient things to do. Everybody talks how irritating it is. Their Apple watch keeps telling them to like stand up, you know, and stuff like that. But that's, that's kind of what we're talking about, right? It's looking at patterns and behavior and synthesizing all this information and using predictive analytics 
is a way that honestly will alert the healthcare provider on who they need to follow up with. If you've been sitting for a long time because you're binging Netflix and we can give you a little nudge and you know get you moving or whatever, maybe that's maybe that's good. But then there's other things and it's like kind of prioritizing these patients that we need to follow up with. So again, being able to do that kind of in that remote environment does require some level of data collection and predictive analytics. Yeah, I think that's a really good application. Another great application that we're seeing more and more of is this predictive analytics. And we've talked about this read in non-clinical settings where you can use predictive analytics to kind of guide prospective patients through your CRM to the right places for care. Well, AI can do this, like analyze these large volumes of patient data, electronic health records, lab results, whatever it might be, to identify patterns and correlations and then be used in a way to intervene with some of those higher risk patients. And we talk, you know, this gets into the social determinants of health and some of the work that you, you can do where you can pull data together to even lead to um, personalized treatment plans. I mean, that's kind of the, the future state here of where predictive analytics and AI can work in this space. Next on the list, drug discovery and development. So in some cases, AI is being used to accelerate the process of drug discovery. You know, looking at vast amounts of data, all the scientific literature, uh, genetic data, et cetera, machine learning models can identify where, you know, potential drugs could have an impact. You know, what, what can is the types of patients we should be looking at, how to optimize treatment plans, you know, things like that. So as we think about the idea of precision medicine, uh, people have been doing that for some time. Obviously, clinical trials, things like that, there's obviously a big use case in this space. And then the one last area that we think is going to be very important with AI, the rise of AI in healthcare also saw and coincided with the rise of natural language processing or NLP. And what that means is being able to take natural language, conversational language, and extract and analyze that information to to be able to synthesize it, to look at clinical notes and research papers, et cetera. NLP in this space is going to do some significant things. Data organization, it can help with coding, decision support. And in fact, Svein and I talk a little bit about the application of that in video visits in the upcoming interview. But nonetheless, if you look at all of these areas, Reed, we can see that AI is definitely coming into its own in the space of telemedicine and and overall care management, if you think about it, in our space. Wouldn't you agree? Absolutely. And I think this is where it really kind of fuels and changes the way we think about the work that we do. You know, how do you identify the right patients to reach out to at the right time? This is how you get not just a personalized medicine, but kind of one-to-one engagements. We kind of touched on at a high level some of these areas. I think this is a good time for us to take a quick pause here. And then when we come back from the break, I want to get into the interview that I had with Shane Villison. You're, I think you'll really enjoy this. He and I discussed how telemedicine adoption occurred in the EU, which I think is interesting, particularly over the pandemic, and kind of compared it to what happened here in America. But then we really pivoted the conversation into how he feels that AI can be used in video visits in the near future. And he actually outlines some specific instances, which really, as we talked about it, kind of blew my mind. Coming soon from Greystone, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media, live from HCIC, a new podcast that brings you front row access to the latest innovative strategies that are shaping tomorrow's healthcare industry. 
In this 12-part series, as recorded live at the Healthcare Internet Conference, we'll hear from industry experts such as Paul Matson of the Cleveland Clinic, Kathy Smith of Roper St. Francis Healthcare, David Feinberg from Mount Sinai Health System, Rose Glenn from Michigan Medicine, and many others. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcasting platform. This podcast series is brought to you by Greystone.net, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media. Welcome back to the Ask the Experts segment of the podcast. And today I am truly delighted to be talking to someone who's new to our show. He's actually outside of America, which is an, an also a first for our podcast. And that's Sven Villison. Welcome to the show. Thanks. Great to be here. You and I have had the pleasure of uh, having a couple of conversations before we're recording. And I'm really excited about today's topic. But before we get started... I would love for you to maybe let our audience know a little bit about yourself, who you are, your background, how you got into the industry, what you do today. Would you mind uh, sharing a little bit about yourself? Cool. Yeah, I can. I'm the general manager for healthcare at a company called Daily. Daily is a video API company. So we offer video calls uh, as an API so that uh, other software companies can add uh, video calls uh, to their own software. And it's typically used a lot for uh, various uh, telehealth solutions. So healthcare companies use it for telehealth. Uh, You have these uh, specific telehealth solutions and also embedding uh, calls, video calls into health record systems. So that's, that's typical usage. Excellent. What's your role there? I work with uh, with uh, go to market uh, for for healthcare companies. Telemedicine is a topic that Reed and I have talked about over the years, particularly during the pandemic. One of the things that I think maybe we could start off with, given that our audience is primarily in the United States, I think they might be a little interested to hear how telemedicine adoption occurred in Europe and in the markets that you serve before, during, and after the pandemic. Do you want to share a little bit about what you, your experience has been? Yeah, I have a very intimate experience. There, <laughs> because basically, that's uh, how I came to Daily was that uh, was that uh, the company that I founded back in 2017 uh, was acquired last year in 22. Uh, and that company was a telehealth solution, a specific telehealth solution uh, that uh, served uh, a lot of uh, healthcare organizations and individual practitioners uh, in Scandinavia. So we went from, you know, being a startup in 2017, trying to convince uh, doctors uh, here in Norway and in Sweden and in Denmark to start using video calls uh, in addition to their physical uh, consultations to uh, seeing a lot of opposition towards that concept. And then the pandemic came and suddenly, you know, everyone started doing it uh, very rapidly. (laughs) So that was a really, really interesting uh, journey, uh, going from doing something that felt like like, uh, unpopular with, um, with the practitioners to something that everyone, you know, needed uh, virtually overnight. That seems like a similar story to how uh, similar adoption around telemedicine occurred here in the United States. And I think it's because in 2017, telemedicine was a really sound, you know, good concept. Yet 
changing the behavior of uh, physicians and the way they practice medicine, there was no sort of inherent need or impetus to embrace these solutions because the way they were doing it before here in the United States seemed to work just fine. But then the pandemic suddenly came and there was no other way for them to have con- continuity of care with their patients. Yeah, that's absolutely true. That's absolutely true. So so that's actually the, what we wanted to achieve. Back in 2017, there already existed uh, specific telehealth services with, with specific providers that uh, only provided uh, consultations uh, using uh, video calls. But our take was that this it would be much better if you could do this with the provider that you already have a relationship with so that you can get continuity of care uh, with that same provider and also the providers who already know their patients are in a much better position to provide good care uh, using uh, telemedicine than those that doesn't have the possibility of also doing a physical consultation uh, if necessary. So that was the take. That was what we were uh, trying to preach uh, in the, in the initial phase uh, of uh, our startup. As you described that, right? Uh, I think that that whole concept of the continuity of care became very critical during the onset of the pandemic and even in the early stages of the pandemic. But we've seen now, now that we've migrated to the pandemic, has become sort of an endemic. So how do you see telemedicine kind of shifting now in this sort of post-pandemic phase? So we were in the position where in March 2020, there was a significant lockdown, in, especially in Norway and in Denmark. Many other European nations as well, but these are the ones that I'm most familiar with. Uh, we saw a, a significant adoption straight away. I'd say if you look at the population of uh, primary care physicians, almost 100% of them tried out uh, video consultations uh, in the initial phase. Mm. We basically got uh, almost every physician in Norway and Denmark as customers virtually overnight in, uh, wow. in 2020. Crazy situation. But I think it's fair to say that that was only the case during the initial uh, lockdown. That lasted from about mid-March uh, 2020 until maybe the end of April or early May. I don't remember the exact date, but somewhere around there, uh, it was then after that, again, allowed for doctors to receive uh, patients physically. And then probably 50% of those that had tried dropped off. But considering that that it was... Before the pandemic, it was only maybe 1% or 2% of the primary care physicians that did uh, video consultation. It was still a significant increase from, from the situation before. <laughs> a- absolutely. But what, what, to what do you attribute this kind of drop-off? Was it just because they can now see patients in person and they they rather go back to their, the old way of seeing the patient in person? or If you're familiar with, uh, there's a concept called diffusion of ideas, where you basically divide the population uh, into how open they are to new ways of doing things. There's a distribution that around 50% of the population is open to new ideas, and the other 50% is not really that open to new ideas. <laughs> mm. And so this matched, matched uh, quite well with uh, what we were observing. So you could say that the, the ones that were the continued were the ones that were probably in reality opening, open to trying a new way of doing things. And the other 50% in reality weren't, but they were forced to because there was a pandemic. So they were in a way kind of just, you know, wait, wanting to 
not do this. And once it was possible for them to receive patients physically, they they reverted to that. Of course, uh, the ones that continued to do video consultations also reverted to do physical consultations. But they had now discovered a new way of uh, working and gradually over the next half year or so kind of figure out what is the place for telehealth in a normal uh, uh, primary physician practice because it is it is different than what people think like in, in like people think that the primary use case is to prevent the patient from having to travel to the the doctor's office but uh, the doc- doctors know that there is a number of conditions where you need the patient to travel to the office because you need to check uh, specific things. So the use cases are different than what people think. Typically, repeat consultations, that's very well suited for, uh, for telehealth. When there's a known condition and it's basically kind of a check-in, how is it going, etc. Maybe we need to adjust the medication f- for some reason or... That type of consultation is, at least for primary care physicians, it's a lot of what they do is that type of consultation, and it's very well suited for telehealth. So you can you can say that in 2020, for many of the physicians, this was kind of a discovery phase where they discovered, they first they discovered that this this is something that actually can work, and then gradually they discovered when this is the ideal uh, form of communication. When, when is, does this actually work better than, uh, than meeting a patient uh, in the office? You know, and I think that that point is very interesting because depending on the type of care that you're delivering, we've been talking about primary care, I could see the value around that. Myself, I have type 1 diabetes and I do regular video check-ins with my endocrinologist about adjusting my, you know, my medication, I just went on an insulin pump, etc. That it's a great medium to do that. Yet when but I still have to go in and get the lab work done and get my blood drawn. And, you know, at those points, there's also that personal connection. But as you look at all the different types of care that's out there from low acuity to even high acuity, there is a role for telehealth. And we just need to find and 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 define what that looks like. And I think part of that is a partnership between the care provider, the physician, and the patient themselves. Would you agree? Absolutely. As the, to some extent, you can't just rely on, on the patient in selecting this as a way to receive care. And I think that is one of the initial mistakes that were made in the telehealth uh, business is, what, is that patients could choose to go to telehealth without any discriminants on uh, what their uh, symptoms were or what their condition was. You know, if you if you have stomach pain, for example, then as a patient, I wouldn't know that this is not ideal for telehealth, but the doctor will know that they want to check if it might be an issue with the appendix. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> and there's a specific procedure to do that, which is really difficult to do over video. <laughs> yes. Our technology is not there yet. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that's stomach pain is an, a symptom where the doctor will usually say, please come to the clinic so I can check for this. It was necessary with something like the pandemic to get enough, get a high enough percentage of the provider population to try it out so that we could get into this uh, discovery phase of where it actually makes sense. And specialist care is definitely uh, an area where it makes sense a lot of times because there it's 
even more often repeat uh, consultations. <laughs> and you get it also into the world of remote patient monitoring. And Absolutely, that's yeah. another another great way to have that check-in with, with less inconvenience on the patient. Absolutely. Absolutely. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. You know, you and I also talked about, uh, prior to this recording, about the fact that the technology was also there at the time. I think that's one of the, the big things about this widespread, quick adoption we were able to turn it on quickly, like you said, right? 100% of primary care doctors were there because we had the technology. We had the high-speed internet. Most devices now have video, et cetera, which kind of speaks to this concept of telemedicine being comprised of a variety of different ways to communicate, right? We phone and you could do video chats, you could do asynchronous and synchronous communications, et cetera. I'd love to hear your perspective of why you feel like video chat has a slight edge, or advantage over these other channels. Whenever the physician has the full attention on one patient, that's really consuming the, the physician's time. And then it makes sense to increase the bandwidth, so to speak, not in technical terms, but in communication terms. Like, how can you make sure that the communication between the, the physician and the patient is uh, as wide as possible? You get much more possibility for the physician to assess symptoms, etc., using video than, than just audio. I think that the other modalities uh, has its place as well. Chat, for example, does make sense, but only if you can kind of save time for the doctors uh, by doing that. Most doctors that I've talked to prefer not to have long back and forth chats uh, with patients because they feel that that is very inefficient as compared to just talking uh, directly to the patient. Yes. And I saw that happen. I, I always share personal experiences. A few months ago, I, I contracted COVID and, and reaching out to my primary care doctor, I said, I, I know I have COVID tested positive. I would like to talk about Paxlovid as a potential treatment for that. And I did that via text and they said, let's get on a video chat. And the video chat was for him to, to discuss it. It had that better connection, right? Because when you have that face-to-face with the provider, it's, it's much more meaningful care interaction, so to speak. It makes sense all the way around as well. Like the patient usually feels uh, better taken care of by having the doctor seen them. <laughs> yeah. Another aspect, of course, and we haven't discussed this yet here, but uh, often there's an issue with uh, remuneration as well. Like very, very often there are remuneration codes for a video call, but not remuneration for, for um, a text uh, chat interaction. Very important point, <laughs> right? <laughs> the business of healthcare is important to consider, right? As we think about that, because in America, we're going through some changes to the regulations around that, particularly since now that we've ended our emergency status around COVID, it actually directly impacted the way telemedicine and video visit chats are now reenumerated with 
with the providers themselves. And so now we have a, a completely, it's almost like it's regressed back to what happened prior to the pandemic. And I think we're getting some kind of pushback because to your point, right, it, it has been adopted and a great number of patients have found the value of it. Now we're finding that we're starting to, to look at this and say, are our previous prior COVID regulations sustainable in this new age of where now telemedicine is a, a, a you know, a, a, a valid, a, a valid channel to communicate. Obviously, in Europe, Europe it's different from uh, from country to country. But all of the countries that I am uh, familiar with, which uh, are most of the countries in uh, northern West Europe, there were some activities towards getting remuneration for video consultations already uh, before the pandemic. And it was the pandemic that really just accelerated the use of video consultations under that remuneration scheme. And then in the cases where there weren't any remuneration in place, uh, typically for midwife consultations, uh, nurse consultations, and all the other stuff, most of the places came in place very quickly in the initial phase of the pandemic as well. So there was a lot of uh, lot of uh, regulation activity in uh, in the early 2020. Yes, absolutely, absolutely, and I, I predict that we'll continue to um, as we investigate and understand the role of telemedicine within the care continuum, the laws, the the ways that we're going to adopt these these tools moving forward will will change significantly. It will probably, and to, to my knowledge, when it comes to video consultations, that it hasn't really been pulled back anywhere uh, after the pandemic, but some of the like in some in some places, it was possible also to do a phone consultation and get the same same remuneration as for a video consultation, for example. That has been pulled back uh, multiple places. So there is some some changes, but I think that it's important to have the remuneration for a video consultation. If you want to build a system that emphasizes continuity of care, because you really want you really want the same doctors that that also do physical consultations to also uh, provide uh, video consultations so that patients will go to them rather than one-time doctors in a way. 100% agree with that. I want to pivot our conversation a little bit and talk about where do we see the future of video visits in healthcare. You and I talked a little bit about this and I and I found it to be quite fascinating. If we could put look into our crystal ball, right, and, and predict <laughs> what's in the future. How do you see video visits uh, changing and in particular with the adoption of things like machine learning and AI? Oh, that's very, that's a fascinating topic. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Some things I think at this point are almost given that it will happen in the next few years. And, and I can kind of lay out the different steps that it will take. So we currently, there's been, there's been a leap in uh, language processing over the last few years. One thing that I think is given is that in consultation, there will be an automated transcript of the consultation. Uh, technology for that already exists and it's quite good. And there will be an automated clinical note being produced from the transcript, uh, what's commonly called SOAP notes. That is a very uh, uh, important and large part of the doctor's work is to write these uh, clinical notes. They spend a lot of time of it. In some cases, maybe up to 50% of their working time. 
not only do they have to write uh, clinical notes, but they also have to do a lot of uh, you know coding based on on the note, extracting data that they enter into their health record system to get paid, to get the diagnosis code correctly, etc. All of this uh, will be automated in near future. Uh, so that's going to save the doctors a lot of work and make the whole process um, of uh, receiving patients uh, much more efficient uh, for doctors. Yeah, I mean, the just even playing around with chat GPT and others, the way they can, you know, synthesize language and edit it down. And, and if we, if we inst- you know, create a, a specific module around being able to take a transcript of a video visit and adopting it into a clinical note, that, that seems like a very natural extension of this. It's quite simple to do, actually, at this point. You basically take the existing models and train them on, uh, on existing conversations and clinical notes. And this is already happening. There are already companies that are working on this. So I am pretty sure we will see this in the next few years. You mentioned there are some other avenues as well. What comes next? That's going to be interesting. Like already, if you have a machine representation of the conversation between a doctor and a patient. Like you have a, when I say machine representation, it's like a machine that kind of understands what's going on in a conversation, right? Then you can start uh, getting help from that machine as well. A machine should be able to have a large model of all uh, medical knowledge that it can easily query, uh, and it can do it in real time while you're talking to the patient. So that opens for a very intriguing possibility of building a co-pilot for doctors. Already the the LLMs, the large language models like ChatGPT, for example, is being used to build co-pilots for developers, software developers, helping them write better code, writing code faster. I think that the same will happen for healthcare industry. Anyone who's having consultations with a patient, having a machine as a something that listens into the conversation and suggests, for example, if you're in a situation where where you are diagnosing uh, symptoms, the machine can suggest different uh, possible diagnoses based on the symptoms and also suggest new questions to ask or new examinations to do to differentiate between the different uh, possible diagnoses. In a way, it's the same work as a doctor does, uh, but uh, I don't think we will see that like as a fully automated so- system anytime soon. Like you really want to talk to a real person, but the thing is that this will make sure that because as uh, you know, as a professional, it's easy to focus on the cases that you know is common. There could be cases that it could also be this. It's not so common, and therefore. In the normal consultations with a, with a primary care physician, for example, it's unlikely to be discovered. But if you have a machine that uh, is able to also factor in these uncommon diseases, then you're really increasing the chances of discovering that. And that's going to be a really helpful tool for uh, providers in healthcare to have that, to also consider these other things that are less common and easy to forget. So I, I, I totally think we will have these, these co-pilots soon after we have uh, automated summaries, clinical notes, and, and soap notes, maybe as soon as within three, four years from now. My goodness. Wow. I also think that will be once 
once the doctor has started using that, then uh, they're not going to not use it, if you understand what I mean. <laughs> yeah, yes, yeah, absolutely. Because if it's one thing that uh, a doctor is afraid of, it's making mistakes, right? So this will be the primary tool to help them not making mistakes. It will be gradually something be, become something that patients insist that their doctors use. And even more so, it will be something that the payers will require the, the doctors to use. So uh, I totally see that would be a technology that will be rapidly adopted. It completely makes sense to me. I love the term co-pilot. I think this is the first time I've heard that. <laughs> but I love this idea because it does make a lot of sense. And it, do- it will take time for the doctors to be you know, comfortable with this tool because there's a trust factor, I would say. Absolutely. And I do believe that it will come to video consultations first, just because uh, video consultations will be the place where a microphone and a camera is used already. Because you can't really do it in a physical consultation unless you place a camera and a microphone in the in a consultation room, which I think most people, both the patients and, and providers will feel is a little bit awkward. Yes. This will happen in video consultations first, definitely. And then it will be the ones that will use it will be the ones that have already adopted uh, video consultations, which are the most uh, you know, forward-leaning providers. This feature that you're painting, it seems very much something that could be attainable. Are there any other uh, predictions that you might have? I do believe that ultimately, at some point, it will be possible uh, to do things uh, more, like even more fully automated as well. It's already been tried out to some extent with symptom checkers, etc. But uh, at this point, it's really not reliable enough to to place any trust in. Once we get there, uh, that's going to be very helpful for because basically. The problem with healthcare is that there is always a much more demand than supply. And the supply is really limited by the availability of uh, professionals uh, in the field. So once it's possible to decouple the, the supply from the number of professionals who works in this, it will, it will be possible to rapidly increase the supply of healthcare, which means that more people will get more healthcare needs met. And also probably reduce the price of healthcare significantly so that you can, uh, when you do things in an automated way and it doesn't involve uh, manual labor from uh, professionals with uh, significant pay, etc., then it should be possible to produce it uh, in a cheaper way. So in a way, it's, it should be possible to raise the level of healthcare for everyone, not just us in the Western world, but also in, in places where they don't really have access to that great healthcare today. And I think that fulfills the promise of the adoption of technology. If you, you, know, you go back as a technologist, there's this concept of technology adoption follows sort of this path of adoption, and then there's it, it kind of drops down a little bit, and then it becomes more normalized. When it becomes more normalized and part of the regular ongoing processes that go on in your life or, or ways that you, you, you conduct your life, is that's when you're starting to really realize the value of technology. And that is, Absolutely. it makes, makes things easier. It makes things more uh, inexpensive. It really kind of lives up to that, that, uh, the promise of what technology in healthcare should be. 
it does. And I, I'm not saying that this will be problem-free because there will be a lot of challenges. But I think this is what we should aim for. This is what we should try to achieve. <laughs> and that's definitely what we're doing at, uh, at Delius, trying to realize uh, all the potential in, in the technology in making health more available. This has been such an interesting conversation. I knew it would be an interesting conversation when we started Sven, but just I've learned my eyes have opened up and my brain is going in so many different ways. I will definitely have to have you back on. Before we close today's conversation, I would love for you to share a little bit more about your company, how they can find you online, and maybe even ways that people can learn more about you online. Sure. Uh, so just go to daily.co and you can learn about uh, what we do and how we realize uh, video consultations. And my uh, contact information is there as well. So I'm happy to speak to people directly if they have any questions or either email or a video call or any other type of communication. Of course, a video call. That totally makes sense. Absolutely. <laughs> and if you don't mind, I'll also put your LinkedIn um Yes, please the do. Show notes. Yeah, because I'm sure there's certain people listening in that would want to carry on the conversation with you. Svian, I really appreciate uh, your time today. It's been really a great conversation. Thank you for sharing your insights and your expertise. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. All right. Well, great interview. Special thanks to Spain for coming on the show and spending some time venturing into the international audiences. Mm-hmm. I think we're still rated pretty highly in like Bulgaria or somewhere for like marketing. <laughs> I, I always get these like, you know, where we rank on like the different iTunes charts and stuff. And we're like third or something. And appreciate everybody uh, listening. Uh, you know, hopefully this was uh, was interesting would love to hear, love to hear your kind of your thoughts and feedback, how you're seeing some of this play out within your organization. Reach out to us. LinkedIn is probably the best way to, to track us down. And then also if there's topics, show suggestions, people we should have on, you know, all, all that kind of stuff, just uh, let us know. So mentioned earlier in the show, the TPS report, uh, be sure touchpoint.health is the website where you can go sign up for that. Love you to connect with us there. And then let's uh, do some recommendations and we'll, we'll call it a week. What do you got today? Reed, I got a show on the new Max app, the oh. H, what HBO evolved to, the new Max app that I'm going to recommend. If you haven't heard of this, Reed, I'm, I know that you're probably going to go watch this ASAP. Smartless on the Road. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Will Arnett, Jason Bateman, Sean Hayes, they filmed them doing 10 shows on the road. And this is basically a, like sort of a behind the scenes between the shows and also part of the shows as they were recording part of the shows. And I'm telling you, these guys are as funny off microphone as they are on microphone, sitting on the plane and kind of arguing with one another, the conversations they have about food and about, you know, when the appropriate time to shower, which is basically a recurring theme throughout the entire six episode arc. It is one of the funniest things. My wife and I, we started to watch it 
we ended up over the course of uh, four days watching all six episodes. We just enjoyed it. They went all the way, you know, it was them going to uh, Washington, D.C., Boston, New York. They had some great people on and that people that actually ended up on their podcast, you know, like including Conan O'Brien and David Letterman and, you know, and others. But this is just a hilarious, hilarious show. And I, I could just highly recommend anybody that wants to watch something that's fun and hilarious, Smartless on the Road, that's available on the Max streaming service. That's my recommendation. There you go. I am actually going to recommend a pair of shoes. Um, <laughs> people know that I, I like shoes and I wear Jordans most days. Jordan 1 Low is kind of my favorite. But I've also become partial to a non-Jordan shoe, which is the Dunk Lows, um, which again is a Nike. It's a low top. Looks a lot like a Jordan 1 Low, but just a hair different. You know, as far as shoes go, pretty inexpensive. You know, around 100 bucks, 120 something like that, but they're hard to get. They're Mm. really, really hard to get much like the Jordans are. They've got a following and everybody wants them, you know, that, that kind of thing. Download the Nike sneakers app. um, And you can, you know, kind of put your name in the hat and try to try to get a pair in the draws when they get released. Uh, The next pair coming up that I'm uh, excited about is the Dunk Low Volt. Uh, They're like a highlighter green color almost. Mm. Those hit on June the 14th. So probably, what, about the time this show comes out? Yeah. So, yeah. So Nike Dunk Lows, you can go on StockX and different places. There's a a fragment, uh, a pair of uh, Dunk Lows with a fragment collaboration coming out um, as well uh, on that same day. So there's a couple of different uh, different ones that are coming out that are kind of neat. So. Check out a pair. Any pink Barbie version Nike shoes? Boy, that would be that'd be strong, wouldn't it? You could probably <laughs> resell those for some real money. Some real money. So, <laughs> well, thanks everybody. Thanks for tuning in uh, again. Rate, review, subscribe, tell a friend, uh, reach out to us. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, for Chris Boyer, I'm Reed Smith, and we'll see you next week. This has been a Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about this show and others like it, please visit us online at touchpoint.health.